where do you want to spend your time? I mean, do you want to spend your time administering the business of the broker dealer or do you want to spend your time promoting your line of business? In any business, you need to evaluate cost structures, regulatory requirements, technology advancements, and your core competencies. You've now got somebody with the budget and with the manpower and the skill set to really create a fully integrated system. Uh, an FA was a hunter out there going to find new business all the time. You know, in the future, they may be more of the farmer and going deeper and understanding their needs. See, the business has changed so dramatically over the last 10 years. We generally are a strong insurance carrier, but it wasn't as strong in 2020. When we look at 2020, we believe not being in front of the client really had a major factor in that insurance. It's more of a face-to-face -face sale than we even thought. Now, that's one of the real values of, of BISA is I love the collaboration that we have in this industry. And I just know that we're going to figure it out and we're going to figure it out together. Hello, and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. Good to have you with us today. Industry Trend Watch is a monthly series with industry leaders discussing trends in the financial institutions channel. Productivity trending is provided by our bankchannelresearch.com portal, an interactive tool that reports on channel performance based on data collected monthly from over 50 financial institutions. This month, we are joined by Paul Haynes, Managing Director of Middleburg Financial, Richard Marsh, President of M&T Securities, and Chris Melton, Director of our sponsoring organization, Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. In addition to industry trends, the discussion includes how financial planning is driving business growth, whether advisory business is redefining our channel, thoughts on the evolution of fee-for-service models, and leveraging third-party broker-dealer model to enable a focus on core competencies. But first, we'd like to thank Ameriprise for making these podcasts possible. And as a show of appreciation, let's please listen to this brief message. We will then turn it over to Jana Capaletti, the creator of bankchannelresearch.com, who will kick us off with a trending overview. This is Chris Melton, National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at Ameriprise.com slash AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you. Hi, this is Janet Capaletti, the Managing Director of Research for Stathis Partners and the creator of bankchannelresearch.com, here to give you an overview of the year 2020 and what a year it was. In hindsight, it's amazing our channel got through the year relatively unscathed, especially since 2020 was more of an event than just another year. Based on a quick survey, the most common word used to describe the experience was challenging, even among programs that surpassed their goals. 
Impressively, the majority of respondents came within 5% of their 2020 plan. And here's how the year unfolded. First quarter productivity was 10% over the first quarter of 2019. Activity then contracted significantly in the second quarter. Revenue penetration sank to under $1,800 for the first time in five years. And FC revenue plunged 10% to just under $35,000 per rep. That's the lowest since 2017. By June 30th, we were still behind, but as financial institutions adapted to a new way of doing business, we saw a rebirth of fixed annuities aided by the low rate environment. So the second half of the year yielded production similar to, and at times better than, 2019. Managed money fees set a new record high in Q4. By the time it was over, annual revenue penetration had slipped only 2% from 2019 and FC productivity was unchanged. How did this happen? Yes, the markets ended up cooperating, but that's only half the story. The other half can be credited to the human spirit, adaptability, resilience, and perseverance combined with the embrace of technology that make the pivot possible. 2020 may very well have redefined the way our industry conducts business going forward. I'd like to thank LPL and Infinex for providing much of the important data used in this analysis and turning it over to Scott and Bob. Hello, I'm Scott Stathis and Bob Mattel and I will be moderating this panel discussion. This podcast is brought to you jointly by BISA, Ameriprise and Stathis Mattel. I would now like to turn it over to Bob Mattel, who will introduce himself and then let our three industry leaders introduce themselves. Bob? Thank you, Scott. I am Bob Mattel, and I am the co-producer of this podcast series. And this is actually our sixth BISA industry trend watch, which we started in July. So let's find out more about our panel. Paul? Thank you, Scott and Bob. First, let me just say it's an honor to be on this podcast with the two of you and, and everyone else on the panel. I appreciate it. My name is Paul Haynes. I'm the Managing Director for Middleburg Financial, which is the wealth management arm for Atlantic Union Bank. Just to give an idea of the, the size and scope of our program, we have 20 financial advisors. We're actually looking at the possibility of adding a platform program this year. Our AUM is $1.7 billion in brokerage, and we do about $10 million a year in revenue. All right, great. Rich. Thanks, Bob. My name is Rich Marsh. I'm the president of M&T Securities, which is the broker-dealer for M&T Bank. We currently have 160 financial advisors out there with about a little over 600 licensed bankers. In addition to that, we have five regional insurance specialists. And last year, we did about $91 million in revenue and we're just shy of $21 billion in assets. Thank you so much. Chris. Hey, Bob, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Chris Melton with Ameriprise. I'm the National Director for Ameriprise's Financial Institution Group. Ameriprise today has over 10,000 advisors and inside of our institutional group, we work with approximately 75 financial institutions. Awesome, thanks so much to all three of you for participating in today's podcast. And today, really, we're going to be talking about year-end 2020 trends. So let me start off with the first question. Let's start with, with Rich first. Uh, Rich, overall, it looks like 2020 held up very well when compared to 2019, remarkably, especially you know, with all the challenges that we had. By some measures, it was almost even a record year. How did 2020 turn out for your program? And in your opinion, how much of our channel's 2020 success 
was market-driven versus adaptability and determination? Yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting question, Bob. I think all things considered, it was a very good year from an investment sales perspective. You know, a, a bit challenged in the insurance department. You know, we we generally are a strong insurance carrier and we do a lot of business that way, but it wasn't as strong in 2020. We hit our investment sales goal. You know, that's the target that we set in 2019. We kept this goal all year long, so we didn't change it even during the pandemic, and we achieved it. I think part of the success was market-driven because fee-based products, of course, we're, we're taking advantage of the equity markets. We're in our third year of really growing fee-based products, so it's not as big as we'd like it to be, but it's getting bigger every year. So that didn't help us as much as, say, a program that's 60 70% fee-based. And being able to work remotely and learning how to work uh, remotely and digitally, it really enhanced our program after the second quarter. We were a little bit behind getting there at the beginning of the pandemic, but I think all in all, we got through it. And the second half of the year was very strong. And I think mainly being adaptable and learning new technologies is the real main reason for success. Yeah, technology. Technology seems to be a theme in most of the programs that we've had conversations with. Scott? yeah, Rich, let me let me ask you a following question, too, because you said something that's interesting. You you guys have been doing really well with insurance, and you have your annual insurance reviews and, and all that. And and uh, so you said insurance dropped off in 2020. And you know, my, my assumption is that insurance, specifically life insurance, may be a little bit more on people's minds, given what we're going through. So it's interesting that, that you said you guys dropped off. Is there a reason that you see for that? And do you think it's going to pick up again? I would love your, your perspective. Well, we believe and we hope it'll pick up again, of course. But I, I think when we look at 2020, we believe not being in front of the client really had a major factor in that. It's more of a face-to-face sale than we even thought. And then there was some restrictions in our footprint, at least, especially in the Pennsylvania market, where you couldn't sell insurance face-to-face, even when we were, were in the branches for time to time. So that was some of the main reasons. I think learning how to sell investments on WebEx was uh, the first step. And, you know, it took secondary uh, market to insurance. So insurance is uh, coming back for us. And I like the trends we're at, but it did take a pretty good hit during the pandemic. Okay. Well, uh, we're rooting for you that it comes back because you were one of one of the programs leading the way. So keep it going. <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to do our best. Absolutely. Paul, same question. You know, the first thing that came to mind when you asked the question was 2020 success market-driven versus adaptability and determination. I think of the movie, and, and there's some recency bias here because I just watched it on Netflix, Catch Me If You Can, where at the beginning of the movie, the main character's dad was giving a speech at the, the Rotary Club, and it's a speech that kind of served as an ongoing theme throughout the movie. But, but basically, he told a story about two mice that fell into a bucket of cream. And the first mice just quickly gave up and drowned, while the second mice just kept kicking and fighting until eventually that cream turned to butter and that mice was able to successfully crawl out of that bucket. And I think going into this year, a lot of financial advisors and programs probably feel like that second mouse right now. (laughs) You know, in the NFL, they always say your record says who you are as a team. And I know last year we had a great year. We were up 15%. But there was a lot of just kicking and fighting. And, you know, at the end of the year, I just told my team, I'm so proud of them because I know they did the best job that they could. But 
relying on financial planning. We're also a program that has always put a heavy emphasis on fee-based. We're at 82% fee-based revenue, and that certainly helped because uh, that that helped maintain our revenues. And then you layer on some package products and and a little bit of insurance on top of that. And that's how we were able to, to basically get to where we were without really being able to add headcount or grow during such a difficult year. Let me go back to the insurance question that Scott had asked Rich, because you just mentioned a little bit of insurance. Tell me more. Well, I think, you know, as part of our financial planning process, we spent a lot of time working with existing clients. In fact, that was our primary strategy when the pandemic happens. During times of uncertainty or crisis, I always fall back to stick to what you know. And one of the key components of a good financial plan is making sure that people are protected from unforeseen expenses or emergencies. And so spending a little less time on outside business development and more time on our existing books of business, it's just one more thing that allowed us to talk to clients about. And of course, with everything going on, and you know, it's, it's hard to remember exactly how scary it initially was and how much uncertainty there was with the pandemic. But, you know, mortality, long-term care, people thinking about next generation, parents, you know, all of that really contributed to making that conversation a lot easier this year. Thanks. Thanks so much. Chris, your perspective yeah. from Ameriprise. So we, I want to come at it from kind of two different directions. One is just in general, we saw about a 9% increase in what we would call new net asset flow for our financial institutions. And so, you know, that, that's a pretty good year. It was a, a fairly quick pivot with the technology that that part was already integrated in using Microsoft Teams and the ability for the advisors. And, and really, the, the other thing we obviously had to do is 3,500 kind of, you know, corporate employees, everybody from service to compliance pivoting very quickly to support the group. So we're very, you know, we turned out uh, very pleased with, with that 9% growth rate. It's also interesting that our existing financial institutions still wanted to try and recruit advisors. And, and, and we brought over 50 advisors in this year remotely, which was a pretty interesting environment to think about being out recruiting advisors. And so we're really, really pleased with our results in growth overall, both from a net asset flow and helping our existing institutions you know, where they wanted to, to add additional new advisors. Recruiting 50 advisors in COVID, that is quite the accomplishment. Was technology also key to that as well? Yeah, I, the technology is certainly was an important part of it and the ability to talk to the advisors and then help advisors who are contemplating their move into a financial institution. About half of them came from another financial institution. The other half came from uh, warehouses, independents, et cetera. But, you know, they also want to understand the value proposition. They want to understand the tools that they'll be using. They want to understand how you're going to help them transition during something like this. And so we, we were really, the technology was very, very important because we also typically weren't able to put our transition teams on the ground. So they were working with the advisors and their staff virtually. And it was a really successful ramp year as well. Fantastic. Let me pass it on to Scott, who I think might have a follow-up as well. Yeah. Um, so I have, I have a few thoughts and, I, and I'd like to, um, actually, Paul, I have a follow-up for you, but I'd, I'd like to kind of pivot a little bit and let's do a little forward-looking stuff as since we're now recording this in 2021, right? 2020 ended up being a pretty good year. It looks like from an industry perspective, we trailed off a little bit in November and December, when we look at month-to-month -month productivity and when we look at year-over-year -year productivity. So we had a lot of very impressive months and we did see a little bit 
at least industry-wide, a little bit of a decline in productivity the last two months of the year. However, one of the areas that we broke records as an industry by some measures is advisory business growth. You all mentioned advisory business uh, at, at one point or another already. Paul, you, you mentioned it specifically, saying that it was very successful for your, for your program. So if you look at advisory business and the growth in our channel of advisory business, to a degree, it implies that we're kind of redefining our channel, right? Our channel started as a transactional-based channel. And the nature of advisory business is advice and fee for advice in theory, right? So we are transitioning to an advice-based model. There are a lot of implications of that, right? Many of which we haven't even experienced yet, but as this continues, there's going to be an evolution in the way that we're doing business. So anyway, the, the question I have is, you know, to what degree do you think this is redefining our channel and what are your views of this evolution? So give us your thoughts on, on this whole advisory trend and, and where this is leading us as a channel and an industry. Ultimately, we're, we're looking to provide a consistent quality client experience with each interaction we have with our existing clients or prospects. And I've noticed that, you know, the very best financial advisors that we have seem to do three things very well. Financial planning, business development, and practice management. Now, you notice I, I didn't say portfolio management in there. In fact, portfolio management seems to be what gets squeezed. But just to share a, a quick statistic that I think highlights this. You know, on the financial planning side, I was looking at what we did last year. We did 1,977 financial plans, of which $2 billion in assets are tied to those plans. But if you remember at the introduction, we only have $1.7 billion in AUM. And so, you know, we've been able to uncover a tremendous amount of assets and bring over new assets. I just think in terms of being able to scale, work with the ideal number of clients and, and really focus on that predictive life planning, which is what clients are asking for, the financial advisor of the future is going to look to outsource more and more of what they do, whether it be insurance, but especially on the portfolio management side and, and put it in the advisory business, as you described. Paul, how many financial plans did you say? 1,977 for 20 advisors. So that comes out to about hundred plans per yeah, advisor. 98.85 plans per advisor, which is really impressive. And, you know, let's boil it down. So that's at least a little more than eight plans a month per advisor. So that's, that's right. pretty good. I, you're, you're, um, from what I remember in looking at these stats a while back, you're well above industry average. Are your advisors doing planning based on client segments? Yeah. So one thing I'd like to point out is that includes new plans plus existing plans where there was an update and yeah. we made a, a concerted effort. So part of our value proposition on creating consistent client experience is following a financial planning process. We do have various levels of financial planning, depending on the number of assets, the type of client it is, age, risk tolerance, et cetera, et cetera. But but yeah, I mean, that's that's part of our DNA and who we are as a program. Yeah, no, it's, it's very impressive. Yeah, keep up the good work in that regard. So, Rich, let me, let me pivot to you. So, same question 
regarding advisory business and you know where it's taking us. And you, you said you've been on kind of a three-year march to increase advisory business, and I'm assuming year over year, you're doing more and more of it. So what's your view on advisory business and where that's taking the program? Yeah, I think it's a you know it's a big change over the years for the overall banking programs that are out there. But I think I can remember when recurring revenue, you know, and fee-based revenue was just a rounding error on our PL. Yeah. And now it's become, you know, the major portion of our PL. So we went from being about 13% a year in advisory business to last year being 42%. So so in a three-year stretch, we've made a big effort to change our business. And it's been important. But I think, you know, the real story is behind behaviors and the behaviors that must change with this shift in a solution set. I guess you can make a sale without a strong relationship, but you can't retain clients without a relationship. So I think that's really important as we go forward. You can't build a book of advisory clients and see them every five years like we did in the transactional business. So to a lot of Paul's points out there, it's the way you do your business. It's the planning. We're big on planning too. We have to call for models for change. Uh, I'm not sure if we will be looking at ways to, to split sales and service, segment by products in the future. We'll lock in relations and we'll do everything with deeper planning. So I think segmentation is big. Planning is very big as we go forward. But I think the future is going to be managed money for here on in. I think we have to change our mentality. It was always the hunter. An FA was a hunter out there going to find new business all the time. You know, in the future, they may be more of the farmer and making sure they're getting clients and going deeper and understanding their needs and doing goal-based planning. Yeah, no, I think I think you're exactly right. And, and I'm assuming based on what you said that you too see a correlation between the amount of planning being done and the growth of advisory business, correct? Yeah, without a doubt, you know, we, we're, we just switched our planning software. So, you know, we're looking at not as aggressive as Paul, but we're asking everyone to at least do one plan a week going into 2021. Yeah, great. So this is a good time to hand it over to you, Chris, right? Because Ameriprise has always been huge in financial planning. I mean, that is your, been your DNA for a long time, right? Um, right. And now that you're in the bank channel, I'm assuming that you're doing whatever you can to help your bank and credit union clients evolve into a planning construct and the advisory business along with that is growing. So what, you know, since your perspective is kind of overall looking at the programs you manage, what are your thoughts in that regard? And how are you guys helping with the evolution of not only advisory business, but maybe almost more importantly, financial planning in our channel? Yeah, great question. And I agree with what Paul and Richard said about the things that are happening inside of their financial institution. So today we're right at 60% of recurring revenue inside of our financial institutions. And, you know, that's really pretty interesting as you see the business has changed so dramatically over the last 10 years. We really look, you know, it is our DNA. I mean, we're the, you know, the former American Express IDS now over 15 years ago, Ameriprise splitting away, but that's always been inside of our DNA, a financial planning and advice-based process. And what, you know, with the race to zero on fees inside of investments, which are becoming more commoditized, advisors have to deliver greater value. And to deliver greater value, it's got to be advice-based, goal-based, financial planning-based. That doesn't mean it has to be a 400-page financial plan for each and every client. But we absolutely believe in the foundation of advice and goal-based integration for each and every client inside of the system. And so when we bring forth our 
planning and coaching teams of about 70 folks that work with all of our advisors, including, of course, our financial institution advisors. That is a really big part, especially when they first come over to us as we segment the book of business and help them understand how to deliver an advice-based, goal-based process with our integrated systems, Money Guide Pro, et cetera. And then that's where we're headed for the future, absolutely. So just a quick question, then I want to hand it back to Bob. Relative to planning, do any of you, and Chris, you have a little different perspective on this, so I'll ask a little differently for you, but do any of you have a combination of this? This being your advisors are doing planning based on software, but you also have somebody or a small team that's doing centralized planning for maybe the bigger cases, right? So maybe Chris, you can take that from Ameriprise perspective and Paul and Rich, let us know if you guys do that or if that's in the works perhaps for the future. But Chris, you want to kick us off again? Yep. So, the, so the first part of it is, is really understanding the client's assets. And so our systems are, are really work very well from the client experience standpoint to be able to aggregate their assets, not just the assets held at Ameriprise, but really all of their assets, which obviously drives the financial planning machine, right? Then, then our systems allow for them to do the planning or they have the ability to outsource that to a group that we have internally, regardless of segment of the business. And then on top of that, we have an advanced advice team for, for the more complicated um, we really, with the exception of really complex cases, are trying to develop a client experience that, that our financial advisors across the board are delivering and so that they're not really having a need to outsource that, that the advice-based, goal-based system is built in there. And then if they need support on certain questions, et cetera, they obviously can get that from the advanced team. So, uh, But we do have both. So we offer both, but by far, it's, it's advisor delivered by the greatest extent. Okay. And so, Rich Paul, do either of you foresee a centralized planning person or team in the, in the future? Or are you doing any of that? We had some experience hiring a financial planner at another firm. And I'll tell you my experience, because I actually am a producing manager. I have clients myself. I wanted to use this team. And then what I found out was, now hold on a second. The hardest part about a financial plan is gathering all the information from the client. So after you gather all the information from the client and then you package it in a way that it could be easily deliverable to a centralized financial planning team, I'll be realistic. The majority of the financial planning software out there, I, I could have done the plan in that time. Now, when I came here to Atlantic Union Bank, what was really, really important for me was, okay, I know this team has some capabilities on you know the majority of the cases that they come across, but I did have some concerns about, say, client $10 million and up and our ability to service that client. But, you know, as Chris mentioned, I mean, we use Raymond James as our TPM for the advanced cases, been really, really happy with their support and their expertise. And so personally, I would prefer for the majority of the cases, our financial advisors have that so that they have the competence and the ability to understand financial planning as a process. But yes, for the more complicated and higher net worth clients, we definitely want to utilize the resources that are available to us. Yeah, your point's well taken. To me, the most important part of the financial planning process is the discovery process, right? Really asking the right questions to understand the client. And so that clearly has to be done by the advisor. Chris, you Yeah, I was going to say clearly the discovery process and that process of gathering the information and discussing that with the client. I mean, that's a giant part of the value add, don't you think, Paul, in the sense of really building a relationship? And then, you know, if somebody else is cranking the plan out, don't get me wrong, that's not, that's not, you see that, but by far that you want to build value through that delivery of that, that discovery process. Paul, I think that's what you're saying too. 
Definitely. Definitely. I mean, not, not to mention the fact that you, you have somebody else building the plan and now they have to, you, you, it's almost like you're adding an unnecessary step where they now have to explain the plan to the financial advisor. So the financial advisor is comfortable with it. As I said earlier, I mean, there's only so much time in the day and I do believe in outsourcing as much as you can. So the financial advisor can focus on the relationship, but this is one, one area where I, I truly in my heart believe the financial advisor is best served being that planner. Interesting. I, I love those thoughts and those dynamics, and I completely, I completely agree with you. I know organizations in the past that have tried centralized planning, and then they went away from it again, probably for the reasons that you're outlining. So uh, good stuff. Rich, you had some thoughts too? Yeah, I, I'd say we're one of those organizations, Scott. You know, We had centralized planning for a while, and we did get away from it from the broker-dealer perspective, and now the FAs are leading that charge on planning for all the reasons that Paul and Chris just mentioned. But I'd say we do offer planning at a segmented level. So if you're in the $3 million above range, we usually use Wilmington Trust at that point, our wealth management arm, and they do have a multitude of layers of planning that you can utilize there. So we do offer it at the right segment, so used for the high net worth client. Yeah. And, and at that segment, I'm assuming those clients have a team of professionals working with them, Correct. right? Yeah. It's a different conversation. Right. It's the white glove, high touch stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Which, which is, we all want to get there, right? (laughs) All right. I'm going to shift gears a little bit, but let me make a comment about this shift because what's interesting is that we're talking about advisory business, right? And the evolution towards advisory business. But if you look at the stats in 2020, there were several months where transactional business actually grew very aggressively more than advisory business. So Janet Capaletti, who helps us prep for these calls, runs bankchannelresearch.com, and she captures monthly data from the industry and then aggregates it and puts it up on that website. So it's a really great source to look at trends. And I was surprised several times through the year when I looked at the trending and saw transactional business taking off, but then it became obvious why, right? It's, it's because of interest rates. Interest rates were so low and people wanted a better return. So, you know, what's interesting about that is that we, if you think back maybe two years ago, as everybody started talking about advisory business and, you know, we, we had the whole DOL fiduciary thing going on and people were saying, well, there's still a place for transactional business. The DOL is just eliminating transactional business. Well, this proves it, right? So when interest rates are low, there's still a need for transactional business. The, the sweet spot is always the combination, if you're an advisor, being able to offer both when appropriate, right? So, so that's really interesting. And it sets Bob up, I believe, for the next question, right, Bob? You have a question well, on, on rates? Well, a- absolutely. I mean, we really should uh, switch gears and talk a little bit about the rate environment. And Chris mentioned the race to zero on fees. Well, it seems like we're almost on a race to zero on interest rates. And- you know, they're going to be low. They've been low. What do you think the evolution of the product mix will be as it relates to rates being so low through 2021 now that we're, uh, we're two weeks into it? Why don't we start with Rich? Yeah, Bob, interesting question. I think in as short of a time frame as one year, I really don't expect any major shift in product uh, mix. You know, I think we have to think beyond the economic impact of low interest rate environments. And when you provide investment solutions out there for clients, I think low interest rates are catalysts for shopping. So from a retail perspective, you look at that and it creates money in motion. 
So that's a big thing that goes on in the industry. I think our customers need help deciding. I think it's our job to develop goals, based planning with our clients and take the emphasis off today's rates and onto what you need your money to do for you over your lifetime. I believe that'll lead us to similar solutions from a product perspective with a focus on asset allocation and managed money. So when I look at our overall product mix, which is, as I mentioned earlier, about 42% managed money and then 16% mutual fund, 30% fixed indexed annuity and about 10% variable, and then the rest is other, I don't think that's gonna change a heck of a lot. I think, you know, if we do our planning properly, I think we'll, we'll, we'll come out about the same product mix over time. It also begs the question is, that other might increase more if we do focus back on the insurance product line, which of course isn't really affected by interest rates. And every time we've had lulls in interest rates, insurance, of course I have to talk about that, that's how I grew up in the industry, that should really help, help that other category to, uh, to grow as well. I didn't include other wasn't part of insurance. That's a separate whole category for us. So it's very important <laughs> to us too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Paul, your thoughts. Well, first comment, you know, I, I watched a lot of the, uh, the cable news shows and apparently, you know, a lot of disagreement and arguing drives ratings. And I'm sorry that we're going to hurt your ratings here by seemingly always agreeing with Rich and Chris, but that's exactly what I'm going to do here. You know, I, I know at our bank, for instance, we've put such an emphasis on a consistent quality client experience that the days of a branch giving a referral in the form of, oh, I'd like you to meet our rate specialist to get you a higher rate, or we can get you a higher rate of money on that. Those days are pretty much gone. I mean, what we're focused on is actually training our bankers to do financial planning and look for opportunities to source appointments with folks who do have money, who need that money long-term for retirement needs and, and other things. So maybe a little bit skewed, not so much the industry, but I will say for our program, as I look out to this year and the types of referrals that we're not only getting, but are really putting a marketing plan to drive more referrals of this type, I think there's going to be more of an emphasis on annuities for folks who are near retirement with guaranteed income riders. I mean, there's some fantastic products out there that people just need to be educated on. And I'm not just piggybacking off what you said, but insurance, life insurance, I mean, it's, it's on, on everybody's mind. What if? And then especially long-term care options, those seem to be drying up in some traditional ways. And then there's some new innovative products that are coming out that I think will grab a lot of attention this year. Well, thanks so much. And also appreciate the comment about our listenership. And for all of our listeners out there, please remember to subscribe because we do promise more conversations about life insurance in the next couple of updates of BISA Industry Trend Watch. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Chris, did you have anything to add on? No, I think, you know, when we look at our year over year numbers relative to fee-based and, and then transactional business, the transactional business is still really strong in our financial institutions. And, in, and if you think about a, what is likely to be a fairly long-term low interest rate environment. I don't, you don't think we're going to pop out of this thing anytime really quick. And then you look at the demographics of people retiring, you know, they've got to have a way to control the risk that they need to take because they're not going to be able to, you know, you can't put everything in, you know, one and 2% type things and try and retire. So I think that's going to maintain the need inside like some of the annuity products that Paul was talking about, et cetera. So, and as much as we talk about the advisory business and the need to move, you know, the, the need to move there to add value, we're not saying at the same time that transactional products and annuities are bad at all. 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, really do appreciate that. And again, thanks to everybody about the plug for insurance, because I really do believe <laughs> that this 2021 could be the year and it can't all happen in September, which is traditionally life insurance awareness month. Let me toss the baton <laughs> over to Scott. We say this year could be the year, but we've been saying that for about 20, 20 years, I think. <laughs> 20 years that I've been in this business or longer. You can, you can tell Bob has a sweet spot for, uh, for life insurance, right? So I'm going to ask you a question that I'm going to, in a strange way, wrap back into life insurance, but it's not a life insurance question at all. And let me, let me kind of explain why I'm asking this question. We've been talking about advisory business, right? And, and advisory business is fee-based business. But the fees in advisory business, even though it's called advisory business, are really not based on advice at all. They're based on AUM, the amount of AUM that you're managing. So, you know, I saw an interesting quote last year and it said, you know, our business, when you, when you think about advisory business, it's the only business where somebody can ask an advisor, well, how much do you charge for what you do? And the answer is, well, I don't know. How much do you have? <laughs> right? I mean, that is a perfect example of the flaws in charging for AUM, because in theory, in a perfect market, you should be charging based on the value you're adding as an advisor. So what value do you add? Well, the value you add is based on the quality of your guidance and your advice. The quality of your guidance and your advice is based on how well you really get to know your clients, right? What motivates their financial decisions? What are the emotional factors behind it? What does it mean for them to take care of loved ones? All that kind of stuff, right? So how well do you get to know them? And then what process do you put in place to work with your clients on an ongoing basis? You know, financial planning is part of that. And then a financial plan isn't one and done. It has to be reviewed on a regular basis and modified, right? Because goals in a financial plans are just wishes, right? They're not hard and fast things that once they're set, they don't change. They do change. People go through different phases in their life and their goals change. They might get divorced. Well, a lot of their goals are going to change if they get divorced, right? Who knows? But point is, goals are just kind of wants and wishes that are going to be modified as people age. Anyway, so that whole process, if you're a good advisor, is the value that you're adding when you're helping your clients. And so in theory, fees should be based on that value that you add, not the amount of AUM you're managing. Now, if you have that scenario, you know, a fee based on the service you're providing, aka the value you're providing, then it becomes possible and obviously there are segments, right? You have service level, different service levels for different client segments. But if you're, if you're charging based on the service you're providing, then it doesn't matter whether you're working with liquid assets or non-liquid assets, or it doesn't matter how much money you make based, because of a life insurance transaction, which is part of the problem, right? Advisors say they don't make enough money off of life insurance for all the effort they put into it. Well, if you're just working on a fee-for-service model and one of your responsibilities as an advisor is to protect your client's assets, it doesn't matter how much you're earning from a life insurance transaction because you're earning nothing from that transaction. You're earning everything from the value you provide and part of the value you provide is protecting your client's assets. So I love, this is the forward-thinking question, I love the concept of you know fees based on the value proposition, the value you're providing as opposed to fees based on AUM. I don't think we're going to stay with fees based on AUM for too much longer, frankly, because it just doesn't make sense if you think about it very logically. So the question is, what are your thoughts about the possible evolution towards fee-for-service models? Are you considering putting your toe in the water in any regard with that? And, and you know, will it ever take hold in our channel? 
Chris, I'd love for you to maybe kick off the answer to this question because Ameriprise is in a bunch of other channels. And I know some of those other channels are definitely going towards fee for service, right? They're, they're migrating right. towards that model. Will it happen in this channel? And then Paul and Rich, what are your thoughts in this regard? I know you're just getting into advisory business, but what's next, right? So Chris? Yeah. So first of all, I absolutely agree with kind of the preface that you put down. In the financial institution channel, there's still some legacy business. There's still there's still a need to provide service to a broad spectrum of clients that walk through the door or come in virtually. And so you, you have to think about tiering your business. And if you're in an independent practice or if you're in a wirehouse type practice, you know, you can be a little bit more selective about who you work with. And that allows you to not necessarily have to deal with smaller accounts, et cetera. So as we think about our financial institutions, we think first of all about tiering the business. And then when tiering the business, understanding what your service level agreements to those people are going to be and what the cost of that delivery is going to be, therefore allowing you to charge a fee in certain places and other places, not so much, depending on the number of meetings you're going to have, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how we think about this with our advisors. It begins with tiering the book of business and then understanding to build out a menu of how you're going to deliver that and then use the systems to help guide you through that. We absolutely believe that you're going to have to deliver greater value in that the portion represented by what you're being paid by the customer related to the asset management piece, there's pressure on that. And so you've got to have that broader level of services. So, you know, for example, one of the things we're doing, especially that's been especially interesting inside of our financial institutions is we're moving to a very low cost, low minimum kind of fee-based product to kind of help fix the problem with the old direct mutual fund stuff that's out there, right? Hundreds and thousands of clients that are underserved, Yet, you know, there's really an, op there's an opportunity to better serve them, give them a better experience and actually create a revenue stream above what you see today for those folks. And so those are the types of things that we're thinking about as we go forward. Advice-based, tier the business, service level agreements. I think that's appropriate stuff. So Paul, what are your thoughts? And I, I, you're always forward thinking. We've gotten into these discussions before. So I'd, <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on this evolution. Well, well, sometimes I can be a little too forward thinking because we rolled out a, a startup eight years ago. I stepped out of the bank channel and it was based on an upfront fee and a subscription model for financial planning. And well, I'm back in the bank channel because <laughs> you can tell how well that went. So, you, well, you are ahead of your time because you know, that is starting to catch on now. Maybe not in the bank channel. No, you're right. You're channel. right. It is. And it's fun to see the fee for plans, the subscription models. You know, I, I, I'm probably going to dodge the question a little bit, but just say, you know, that's one of the real values of BISA is I love the collaboration that we have in this industry. And I just know that we're going to figure it out and we're going to figure it out together. And it's always helpful to follow the lead of, you know, some of the larger banks and some of our peers who really do a great job. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to kind of raise the bar unnecessarily high for Rich, but just say, when I see Rich's bank start doing this, that's when I know we need to do it. But I want to get my folks ready and prepared for when that day inevitably does come. Because like you, I, I believe that day will come at some point and it's just a matter of when. Rich, I think Paul just punted to you. So now you have the ball and you are running. Go for it. <laughs> uh, I, I did a fair catch. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's an interesting concept. And I agree. I think the industry is going to change as, as margins continue to compress. And we have to think about different ways to you know, offer our business out there. But we haven't really got into it as a firm yet of fee-for-service. We've talked about planning differently, about charging for planning, subscription services, you know, I see there's firms out that are charging X amount an hour now or X amount a year. 
those conversations we're having more and more. But I do think it's going to come down to segmentation and how you deliver services and value to those segments that are out there. So do I think the bank channel will be there tomorrow or, or in the next couple of years? Probably not. I think the bank channel generally follows follows the wirehouses and things of that nature, but it's something that's going to inevitably come to our business. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we do tend to follow, but we need to always keep our eyes open and watch what's going on in other channels because that's our competition, right? And I think that's where the third-party broker-dealers really can help because they have clear visibility into some of the other channels. And you know, I know many of the third-party broker-dealers are already planning on or accommodating fee-for-service types of processing and compensation in the back office, right? So it's already starting. So, all right, let's continue with this kind of forward-thinking line of questioning. Bob, you have a question as we were looking into 2021, right? Well, you know, I was originally going to ask, you know, what are you going to do differently from 21 to from 20 to 21? But you know, because we t- because we always tend to look at our business on a year to year basis, but with COVID, it seems like we're almost in a fiscal year that started in March of 2020 and is going till I don't know how long. So let me just rephrase the question a little bit. What have you started doing when COVID began that you're going to continue doing as we're still in this virtual environment and we're moving into 2021? So, you know, Rich, you know, what do you think you've learned over the past 10 months that you'll continue doing as we uh, are now in 21? Well, you know, the obvious answer is, you know, I believe that WebEx or the next generation of video meetings is here to stay, regardless of when my people are back in the branches every day. I think WebEx and video are going to have a place going forward. We found some efficiencies there in different ways to meet with our clients. And what we found that clients like it, too. We've had examples of clients coming back and saying, when we're all through this, can I meet with you this way in the future? It's easier for me to do this than to drive. 15 miles to come into a branch. So I think we're learning along the way and want to be able to serve our clients properly. I think we'll continue to train and work more towards, you know, the e-signature, DocuSign, Adobe, whatever firms use out there to get that to be the preferred way to do business as we move forward. Uh, And then engage our clients digitally in interactive planning too. So more digital, more video. But I think the biggest thing we learned is clients just want to be spoken to. It doesn't matter which mean it is. If it's in person, video, phone call, we just need to be talking to our clients more often. And, and, and you're probably talking, yeah, and you're probably talking to much more of those clients and in a much more efficient way. Correct. I, I think so. Uh, you know, I think you can schedule your time out a little bit better. There's nothing that ever replaces face-to-face, but there are different ways to communicate with your clients. And I think we figured out it's okay to do it differently. It's okay to do it over video, over FaceTime, over whatever way your firm allows. And I think clients have appreciated that. Great. And Paul, and what I've now defined as our new fiscal year that started in March of 2020 and goes until whenever, what do you think you're doing differently or going to well, be doing first, the same? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me let me just say I completely disagree with the way you asked this question. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm just looking for a little bit of drama here. But in a way, I do disagree with the way you are asking it because remember, we're that second mouse. We kicked and we fought and we climbed out of that bucket. So 2021, we're no longer in the bucket. And I think we can do things a little bit different. 
And the way we're going to do things differently is we're really, really focused on playing offense versus defense this year. And our strategic initiatives, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll share the three that we have. The first one, just partnering more closely with the bank and being more aligned with them. You know, Scott, you've done a lot of great data and research on the value of a financial institution for, or, or an investment program for a financial institution. And it's one thing to share that data with senior leadership. It's another thing to act on it. And we're, we're really looking to do financial planning training across the entire bank this year. And a licensed banker program, as I mentioned at the beginning of the call in the introductions, and using big data to source new opportunities for us. I mean, we're also looking to team with wealth and break down silos and use financial planning during the part where we're developing the plans, bringing in teammates and trust and private banking and asset management to build what we're doing and just build on the service model we've had for our clients. And then the last part, practice management. You know, two ideas, if you don't mind me sharing that I think a lot of our people listening to this, I want them to get some really good actionable things. But two ideas that really sell financial planning that we're leading off with the first month is I like to call it real simply, what can go wrong? (laughs) And it's fun to do this in front of a commercial team or in front of a group of branch managers and just say, all right, let's start listing. What can go wrong with your clients, especially the business clients or the ones who own businesses? You know, they could see increased competition. They could see a decrease in customer traffic. They can get sued. They can have an untimely death or disability. You start listing them and it starts to get overwhelming with it. And then it's like, all right, guess what? Through financial planning and the products and services we have, let's solve for each one of these things that can go wrong. Now, following that, I don't know if you're familiar with the game show, Whose Line Is It Anyways and and Improv, but we've used this as a fun way to really demonstrate the financial planning tools and how it works. And in a group setting, I just say, all right, give me an age of someone between 45 and 60. Now, what profession does this person have? And we make some assumptions about their income. How much money do they currently have saved for retirement? Tell me something else about this person's life. And then I'll go through and I'll just start inputting the data into the financial planning software. And inevitably, because every time I've done this, it always shows, oh boy, the probability of success is not good. This person's in big trouble. And then I'll kind of turn the camera back onto the crowd and I'll say, all right, you're the financial advisor. I'm the client. I'm freaking out right now. Tell me what I need to do to to improve my situation. And they'll throw out suggestions like, well, maybe you can work a little longer and I'll move the little lever. Maybe you can spend a little less in retirement and I'll move the lever the other way. Maybe you can find a way to tighten the belt and save more. And then that most important answer, maybe they can take on a little bit more risk. And what's real eye-opening to the whole thing is when they do this, they see they went from, or they took this fictitious client from a really bad probability and really bad situation to, you know what, they're going to be in really good shape. You know, I already promoted the the movie earlier. I'm going to promote Geico, but Geico's famous line is 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on your car insurance. During this whole process, I always have somebody timing us and it's always under 15 minutes. And the real impactful thing is just to say, now, isn't it fun and rewarding to know that in under 15 minutes, we could diagnose and improve somebody's life in retirement? Like, let's go out there and find these people. And they they get real excited about it. So those are two ideas that we're going to resurrect and implement again. I just thought people listening, you know what, if you've stuck with us this long, 
I hope you found some benefit and some value in that. Well, Paul, well said. I think he's auditioning to be a moderator of a future podcast as well. So to all of our listeners, please subscribe and you will get more nuggets like that month after month after month. And Paul will be back to give you more. Chris, if you remember what the question was. (laughs) I think I do. 2020, 2020 versus 2021. I absolutely agree that you know, it's been like one continuum since last March as we go forward. But uh, there's really kind of three things that we're working on very closely with our advisors and with our institutions is uh, what we call the Ameriprise client experience. And you guys keep talking about green and red and everything. And what we're talking about is an advice-based, goal-based process for every client, right? That's what we're talking about. Because we're all talking about the whether it's the Money Guide Pro or whoever you're using inside of there, whatever tool to help those clients really really look at you from an advice base. So that's number one. We want to deliver that to every client to have at least one goal. Secondly is tiering the business, which is, is the beginning part of that. But then there's a really smart guy. He's actually on this podcast. And he says to me earlier in the year, you know, it used to be we had to get in the way of the traffic, the branch traffic. Well, guess what? There's no more branch traffic. And even, even as we come out of COVID, we people who thought for years and years that there would be a generation that would keep coming into the branches forever, they've had to learn how to do things online as well. And so we better get in front of them in the digital traffic. I think, I'm not sure who said that, but I think it was a guy named Scott. And so that's exactly right. So one of the things we're Ooh, working that. with our finance, right? It was just you. <laughs> we, I, steal, I steal all my best stuff from guys like the guys on the podcast here. So the other thing we're also working with our financial institutions, and it's the problem we all have, and as you see, say, okay, what's, what's your household penetration of your program of the total credit union customers? And it's always a number typically below 5%, right? So one of the other things we're working on very hard is to use big data and use some of the tools that we have to help them deliver a digital advice-based process. It's a digital experience, but it also allows the client to raise their hand when they want to, to get some advice from an advisor. And we think that's very important because we think it's really important that they connect to you and to your financial institution's brand. But if they want to go digitally from end to end, we should not try and segment how the clients get delivered. We just want to segment the clients, right? Don't, don't, don't force them into a certain delivery model. Let them choose the model they want. And, but always be sure that they have a connection to your institution. So those are the things that we're working on really hard this year. Great. Fantastic. And digital and technology. I mean, that's, those are really the buzzwords for 2021. It, it's funny, actually, Janet Capaletti, who collects the data for our industry, Trendwatch and other data categories, always asked each person that provided information to describe the year in one word. And some of the words were challenging, unprecedented, unforgettable, pivot, optimism. But we all can point to digital and technology as two things that really have been buzzwords for 2020 and 2021. I mean, there's so much stuff going on in the industry. And I know uh, Scott, I think, is going to take us home with one last question that's really encapsulates the uh, the entire environment that we're in right now. All right. Yeah. So so the last question, and this is our year-end podcast, right? So this one's going a little bit longer than the others, and it deserves to because this is some really interesting stuff. And one of the things that clearly we're all seeing in the industry is the evolution for some large banks moving to a third-party broker-dealer model. And I could guess at all the reasons, but I'm not going to because we have people that are more qualified than me in this discussion to maybe give us their thoughts. So, you know, is it a trend that we're going to see continue, that trend being moving from your own broker-dealer to a third-party broker-dealer? And if so... Why is it a trend? Why why is this happening? And and obviously, Rich, you're very qualified, I think, to kick us off with your answer since you've decided to do this. So 
give us whatever insights you can. I know you're not going to pull the sheets back completely, but just, just give us your insights, if you will, Rich. Well, I'll start by giving you the overall, how we made the decision, I guess, or what we think about the decision. So I'm not sure it's a trend, but it's certainly something that companies will evaluate. More and more companies will evaluate over time. I think to remain competitive in any business, you need to evaluate cost structures, regulatory requirements, technology advancements, and your core competencies. When you hold them up against a backdrop of your mission of delivering value for your customers, your colleagues and shareholders, I think that's when your strategy comes out. The key will be for any company will be to evaluate decision on a multi-pronged approach and not simply look for margin. I think it'll be right for some people in the industry and not for others. When I think about our decision to make our move, I always describe it out. We were looking for growth through technology. A lot of people ask me the question, did you do it to save expenses? And my answer is always this. No, uh, yes, there are expense saves in there, but you pay when you go use a third party too. We leverage third party in order to become, we so we could grow more and leverage their technology, the technology we didn't have today. And we weren't going to have any time in the near future. So it was a smart decision for us, we believe. You know, we'll see how that plays over the next few years. But we think it was the right decision for us and other firms that I've talked to, but may not be the right decision for every firm. Rich, let me just follow on to that. So technology is pivotal these days, right? Technology is now so front and center in our business, much more so than it's ever been. Technology drives the client experience. It drives the advisor's ability to work efficiently, et cetera, et cetera, right? So creating and maintaining a platform for an investment and insurance program is much more difficult today than it's ever been because it has to be an integrated solution. It has to be a end-to-end platform. And if you're a bank, you're not a software company, right? Those are two very different models. And so you brought up the word core competency and I applaud you because you know, realizing what your core competencies are and aren't, and then being able to leverage others to provide the necessary components for what are not your core competencies. How can you argue with that? Right. And if you guys want to be a software company, more power to you, but I don't think that's where you're going. Right. So I completely understand your decision, especially given the commitment it takes to maintain a technology platform these days. Yeah, I would tell you, Scott, that uh, we've gone through this three times looking at this option in the 20 years that I've been there. So we finally pulled the trigger on the third time, but we've tried doing our own uh, front end system. Yeah. Uh, then it didn't talk to the new system we brought in for managed money or it didn't talk to this other system. And people were keying, you know, the same piece of paperwork in the sales end and then on the back end in the back office. So the efficiencies that we're going to gain from a technological standpoint are immense. It's just tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think your comments are going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. So I appreciate your candidness about the decision and the fact that you've been through this three times, right? It's not like it was a snap decision by any stretch. (laughs) It was a long, it was a long sales process for the third party. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. Yeah, thank you, Rich. And Chris, I'd like you to wrap up this one. So I'm going to hand it to Paul first. And then Chris, from your perspective, uh, as a third party broker, I'd love to hear your thoughts. But Paul, as Rich was talking, I saw you nodding your head and smiling. So you probably share some of the same thoughts. 
Yeah, having come from managing or having the same role in, in my own broker dealer, yeah, the technology. I mean, I, I just remember our advisors asking for some new thing, whether it be performance reporting or CRM. And I'm like, good news, everyone. We got the budget for it this year. And then and then it wouldn't work. <laughs> and that was frustrating. I think that, you know, outside of technology, the the fundamental decision that you need to make is where do you want to spend your time? I mean, do you want to spend your time administering the business of the broker dealer? Or do you want to spend your time promoting your line of business? And I can tell you, you know, I've managed the PLs for both our own broker dealer and now with the TPM. There's not that much difference. But I'll tell you what the big difference is. I'm spending all my time growing and promoting our business. I'm spending my time helping our FAs and keeping our best FAs productive and keeping them at our firm. I'm spending my time helping our firm get new clients. What I'm not doing anymore are the 13 required meetings I needed to do on a monthly basis just to be compliant with running the broker dealer business. And so, you know, I think that's really it. Are you interested in administering the business or are you interested in promoting the business? And I think, you know, that latter one is a really strong, compelling reason to look at a TPM. Very well put. Completely makes sense. And as you were talking, I I watch Rich smiling. And so he's so glad to be out of those 13 meetings a month, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so Chris, you want to give us your, you uh, and, uh, your, your, your thoughts from a third-party broker-dealer perspective? Having uh, many years ago run a bank broker-dealer and then having been involved with third-party broker-dealers for the last uh, 15 years, I think the guy said it exactly right. I mean, obviously, risk is one that I would also say. We, the regulatory risk, you're able to shift that risk pretty much off of the bank and on to the third party. But now I think the two things that the guys talked about, you know, Rich talked about technology and, and that's exactly right. You know, you've now got somebody with the budget and with the manpower and the skill set to really create a fully integrated system that works. And then to Paul's point, it takes bandwidth to run a broker dealer. And, you know, you really want to focus on what you want to focus on. And is that running a broker dealer? And all the frustrations and all the risks that goes with that are you really focus on growing the business and really providing a great service to your clients. And so those are the reasons that we see it. I think Rich is right. You're going to see a lot of the bank or financial institution owned broker dealers all go through this risk evaluation and through the client experience evaluation. I don't know that there'll be you know massive numbers, but I think we'll continue to see these type of broker dealers going to the third parties for sure. So now, Rich, we all want to know what you're doing with all your extra time. Maybe we should all go out for a round of golf or something. Well, let's make let's be clear. It, it doesn't happen until June for us. So uh, <laughs> I still have all those meetings. Uh, so <laughs> no, you, you, you now have even more meetings. You've got the yeah. meetings, the transition meetings and trying to grow the business meetings. So, <laughs> And every time you think like after June when it's done, we'll have more time. There won't be more time. But you know what it'll be? To Paul's point, I think it'll be time that's more fun. So when you're working on the business, promoting the business and getting out with your people, to me, that's what makes you smile every day. So you can help your your advisors and their clients. And then we all win. Yeah. I think that's a great way to look at it. And not only is it more fun, it's more productive. Hey, listen, being productive is fun, right? right? And these admin meetings about, you know, why doesn't our CRM work? Hey, yeah, that's just not fun. <laughs> so good stuff. All right. I think I think it's a wrap. This was a good conversation and we really appreciate all of the thoughts that you guys provided and your insights and your input. So Rich, Paul, Chris, thank you all very much for 
participating in this year-end wrap-up episode. We appreciate the leadership that you provided to the industry. We hope to have you back in the future. And let me turn it over to Bob for some closing thoughts. Thanks so much, Scott. And thanks so much to the BISA for enabling this podcast, in addition to Ameriprise for sponsoring this podcast series. A shout out to Jeff Hartney and Jason Myers from the BISA and to Janet Capaletti, who handles all the data collection for the series. We hope you all enjoy this podcast and listen in each month. And we also hope to see you in person at the annual BISA conference in July, from July 13th to the 16th in Hollywood, Florida. Thanks, and we'll hear you again soon. <laughs> or you'll hear see, us again well, soon. You'll, you'll hear us again soon. <laughs> Something like that. Thank, thank goodness for editing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks again, you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this 2020 year-end BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. And thanks to Ameriprise for their much appreciated support. We would also like to thank Paul Haynes, Richard Marsh, and Chris Melton for sharing their insights. Finally, be sure to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, focused on industry-leading performance and success stories, and Untangling FinTech, aimed at helping you keep up with the evolution of technology offerings in our industry. Goodbye until next month.